I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the London Review of Books podcast. I'm Thomas Jones. Today I'm talking with the sociologist and political economist William Davis, who teaches at Goldsmiths and whose books include The Happiness Industry and Nervous States, How Feeling Took Over the World. He has a piece in the latest issue of the LRV on inflation, interest rates and how, as he puts it, efforts to depoliticise the economy, to distance politics from economics, no longer seem to work. Hello, Will, and thank you very much for joining me again. Hello, great to be here. So, as anyone who has a mortgage or who pays rent to a landlord who has a mortgage or who has credit card debt or a student loan or who owes money for any other reason knows all too well interest rates just keep going up. The reason we're told is to get inflation under control. So how does that work or how is it supposed to work? Well, the, the idea of this is that by uh, the the interest rates are the the price of money the price of borrowing and that by pushing interest rates up this means that people are going to borrow less money in order to um, uh, purchase goods there'll be less money in circulation less money chasing the same number of goods uh, and that inflation has come about because uh, there's been too much money in circulation and not enough goods in circulation um so the theory is that effectively you make uh, the cost of money more expensive. You mean that you, you, this results in people borrowing less of it, uh, spending less of it. The economy effectively slows down. So it's a kind of artificially uh, generated attempt to withdraw uh, money from circulation in the economy. And ultimately, it can lead to a recession, which can be necessary under some circumstances in order to uh, bring inflation down. And one of the reasons why the Bank of England, uh, which has responsibility for setting interest rates, believes that uh, there is uh, still uh, persistently high inflation in the UK is that uh, wage demands have been uh, not quite as high as inflation, which, as we know, has been up around 10% over the last few months. Wage demands have never, on average, been that high. But the Bank of England um, gets rather worried when it sees that um, workers are able to make demands for wage gains that are um, start to look similar to the rate of inflation, because that suggests that you're going to get this kind of circular problem known as the wage price spiral, where effectively workers um, are receiving money that is commensurate with inflation. And that means that companies are going to have to start pushing up prices in order to pay those wages. And then you get this kind of circular problem, which can be very difficult to break. So it, as a matter of uh, policy objectives, uh, central banks such as the Bank of England do want to see uh, wages fall in real terms and potentially want to see unemployment rise uh, because when unemployment rises, that suggests that the economy is cooling off and it also weakens the power of labour in the economy to push for more wage rises. Um, so... Well, we think often of uh, economic policy as being obsessed with growth and, you know, debates around uh, degrowth and, you know, can we have endless growth on a 
finite planet and all that kind of stuff. Actually, there is a whole wing of um, economic policymaking, a very important wing of it, which is monetary policymaking set by central banks, which actually doesn't really have um, a particular preoccupation with economic growth. It's slightly different in the United States, but the Bank of England has no mandate to pursue economic growth or to uh, make us richer or to uh, uh, tackle unemployment at all. So in that sense, if it needed, if there needed to be a recession and uh, unemployment in order to bring down inflation, that would, I think, from their perspective, be deemed to be um, a worthwhile cost. That whether or not they actually come out and say that is another matter. So that question of the wage price spiral, as you say, one way of defining inflation is too much money chasing too few goods. But this time, where it seems to be caused by high energy prices and disruption to global supply chains, it's a supply side problem, not a demand side, isn't it? Mm. So it's not that there's too much money, it's that there are too few goods. Yes. And wages are not going up. Wages in real terms are going down. So how does this idea of the wage price spiral apply in this case? I mean, this has been the, this has been the, the, the criticism of, of, of the, the central bank response uh, for a long time. So, I mean, the, the, the interest rates began to rise um, uh, over the winter of 2021-2022. Um, there was already uh, inflation rising on the back of the um, end of lockdowns in 2021. Those lockdowns and the kind of slowness and then the return of lockdowns in China in early 2022 led to these various supply side bottlenecks, which meant that uh, the uh, circulation of goods was um, hitting all of these new inefficiencies and and, and stumbling blocks and uh, bottlenecks that hadn't previously existed. It's worth also mentioning that Brexit, of course, has also created all sorts of bottlenecks as well. And um, Andy Haldane, who used to be the um, chief economist at the, the Bank of England uh, and now runs the RSA, I mean, he recently wrote a piece in the Financial Times saying that actually uh, Brexit is uh, as much responsible for, for this inflation as anything else, because it has actually led to higher costs for consumers, higher prices, um, because of the um, partly to do with the, uh, uh, the 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 difficulty in trading with Europe has led to all of these uh, additional costs. But of course, it also allows for various forms of price gouging to 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 arise once uh, we're no longer in the, the single market. Um, but yes, there was the, uh, the the exit from lockdowns. Then there was the war in Ukraine, which had a sharp effect on energy prices uh, across Europe. And these things were supply side shocks that drove up prices, particularly in energy, but then with various knock on effects for, for companies that, you know, in terms of how they um, cover the cost of their own uh, energy costs and this sort of thing. The um, There was a debate amongst monetary policymakers that went on throughout 2022 as to whether or not this inflation was a, a short blip that was going to sort of uh, kind of resolve itself um, once some of those supply side problems had been resolved or whether it was a persistent uh, feature of a, a kind of new uh, a phase of, um, of uh, a new economic phase that required a, a new era of more aggressive uh, monetary policy, that is higher interest rates. And to start with, the, the general consensus was that it's a short blip and it will kind of things will be begin to calm down over the second half of 2022 and 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 into 2023 and i think as time has passed more and more of the uh, monetary policy making establishment have come to the to the uh, unfortunate view that actually there is now a more uh, systematic and sustained problem particularly in the uk the uk has had higher and more persistent inflation than uh, similar economies in uh, north america and in europe um and there are uh, various reasons for this but those reasons don't seem to uh, include 
include the wage price spiral. So as you say, I mean, in the absence of powerful and extensive trade unions, it's quite difficult to see exactly how workers are going to push for their wages to uh, keep up with an inflation rate that is at sort of, you know, has been at around 10% for some time. Um, and as I mentioned in the piece, the only section of the labour market which has actually achieved um, real terms pay increase, that is, pay increases that are above the rate of inflation, are the top 10% of earners. So um, anyone below that top 10% has been experiencing um, a decline in real wages. I think there's very little evidence that this is the problem. But in a sense, the, the, the problem is that, you know, the monetary policy got handed over to an independent central bank in 1997. Uh, the Bank of England is sort of trapped within this sort of um, orthodoxy um, that uh, all it can do really is influence uh, interest rates. It can't, it has no control over things like fiscal policy. Um, it uh, So in that sense, the rhetoric of central banking is that until wages start to fall and until unemployment starts to edge up, then we haven't yet finished the job. That has been the kind of orthodox dating back to the 1970s, when there was a, 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 a very widespread and in some empirical sense, more well-founded um, uh, uh, understanding that part of what was generating the uh, rampant and persistent inflation throughout the in, uh, 1970s and early 1980s was the fact that wages uh, were uh, exceeding um, productivity gains and exceeding the, the rate of inflation, and, and that this was a sort of a cycle that, that could only be broken through uh, the defeat of organised labour fundamentally, which was really what brought um, Thatcher and Reagan to power and 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 yielded the the, the dramatic economic changes of the nineteen eighties. So so there's nothing, as you say, there's nothing that the Bank of England can do other than put up interest rates, but there are still things that the government could do to reduce or, or redistribute the harmful effects of higher interest rates. As, as you said, the only people whose wages or or whose pay has actually gone up are the highest ten percent of earners. So the, the pain is being distributed unfairly on those who can take it least. So is there any sign that the government is going to do anything to change that? Well, I think one of the things which everybody's been quite clear about, I mean, Rishi Sunak and Jeremy Hunt and so on, I mean, in the piece, I suggested that at some point, for political reasons, something is going to crack in this situation, because there, all of the signs are, and and there's always this this lag effect. So when interest rates go up, it takes a long time for the for the medicine to work its way through the the the, the, the economic body because of um, the fixed term. Um, uh, the, the you know people buying mortgages for for two or five years means that um, it's not until people have to refinance at the end of those fixes that the these dramatically higher interest rates uh, will suddenly hit them. So I'm sure most people will have seen all of the stories in the papers and seen some of the figures that have circulated about how much more people are going to have to 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 pay for their for their mortgages when their current um, fixes come to an end. And each month, you know, there's a, another uh, however many um, thousand uh, households are. are are having to um, suddenly encounter this this dramatically changed environment, where you know they may have been they may have had a, a, a fixed rate of of something like one and a half percent if it was from um, uh, uh, from from two or three years ago, and it's going to suddenly be up at about six percent. Um, that obviously has a huge effect, and and one of the effects it has is, uh, of course, to mean people are spending less of their um, they have far less disposable income to to spend on you know things like 
food or entertainment or clothes, whatever it might be. And that is, is also sucking demand out of the economy in the hope that this means that you know the, the the kind of pressure on prices to rise might also begin to dissipate. So that's the kind of the the, the expectation. I mean, I, I I suggested in my piece that, that that you know that given that there's an election coming up and given that this is the most sensitive political issue that, that any conservative government can face, and it was ultimately what did along with Slee is what did for John Major in the in the mid 1990s. Um, it was hard to imagine that having you know had so many kind of bailouts and 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 handouts and this sort of the kind of normalization of uh, of rescue packages and um you know i mean the, the extraordinary thing about liz truss who was seen as this kind of radical libertarian free marketeer fil- filled with ideas from the institute of economic affairs and so on but she was promising 150 billion pounds worth of um of of handouts to households to 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 cover the cost of um energy for for two years um and i mean it's a astonishing kind of uh, sort of combination of different a uh, sort of you know piecing together of different types of of ideology of, of of sort of radical free market thinking with this normalization of 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 patching things up and 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 hand, handing out bits of money and, and bailing out uh, failing um uh, institutions and entities uh, and so i i sort of suggested well you know how long would sunak and hunt be able to hold on i mean the, the noises since i wrote the piece i mean they've been extremely firm that there's no, in no sense can they offer any kind of rescue package for for mortgage holders themselves because that would defeat the very point of putting the interest rates up. So, you know, the logic of the Bank of England, which is the the, the logic of um, kind of orthodox um, uh, uh, macroeconomics, is that you need to, you know, if you, what you're trying to do is to suck uh, demand out of the economy in order to uh, effectively bring about deflation, you don't want to then counteract that by giving more money uh, to householders in order to allow them to sort of to, to survive effectively. And this is one of the things that the IMF took um, Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng to task over last September was saying that, you know, monetary policy and fiscal policy are now pulling in different directions because you've got this central bank that is putting interest rates up in order to try and bring inflation down. Meanwhile, you had this uh, sort of paradoxically rather kind of um, extremely generous uh, fiscal policy of, of handing lots of money out to, um, via tax breaks and, and handouts and so on. So I guess it's, you know, if, if Sunak and Hunt want to carry on playing the role of being the kind of uh, technocratic grown-ups in the room and not, you know, as distinct from 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 Liz Truss or uh, whoever else they might want to contrast themselves with, then I think it would be very hard to imagine that they would ever move towards some kind of um, sort of direct mortgage relief. But of course, they are also they are already doing various things. I mean, Hunt has had meetings with various um, uh, lenders in order to uh, uh, try to kind of. Um, find different ways of you know different uh, uh, deals that people can be given in order to before repossessions take place because you know in the in the early 1990s there were hundreds of thousands of, of repossessions by mortgage lenders uh, and this is in some ways kind of one of the most um, as an attack on the on the core values of 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 conservatism and of and and really of sort of the modern bourgeoisie is you know the idea that 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 somebody who is who, who is who is 
who is on the housing ladder um, and is uh, at least within the kind of um, idealized vision. I mean, it's, very often it's nothing like this at all. But but within the kind of um, the, the 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 normative Thatcherite vision of society is that people are sort of you know they have this mortgage so that they can earn an honest life and raise a family and that kind of stuff. So repossessions are sort of you know a, a, an economic model that that legitimates uh, repossessions is one that is. Um, uh, you know, might make economic sense, but is is it, it, with on the terms of the on the terms of the right, but is extreme is a sort of does direct violence to to the to the conservative um, uh, kind of wing of of of, of neoliberalism. But presumably there is, I'm not saying this is necessarily what the Conservative government would want to do, but there must be a way to reduce the total amount of money in the economy. And at the same time, using fiscal policy or other means, there are ways for the government to redistribute that money so that even though there's less overall, those who need it most still have enough. Mm. For example, those top 10% of earners could be taxed a lot more. Yeah, this is what... um today when we're speaking the there's actually an interview with Kate Barker the economist in the Financial Times where she is making this exact point that actually what well, if government could raise taxes on the on the rich that would actually be a better way of tackling inflation than uh, raising interest rates um and one of the one of the problems here is that um in a highly unequal economy such as Britain's which obviously is completely different from from what it was like in the early 1980s when uh, the Thatcher government uh, and Reagan governments um, conquered inflation through uh, extremely high interest rates um, is that you've got this section of society that is still able to to, to spend uh, really um, that that um, you know without um, much you know with, without these interest rates particularly uh, affecting them. I mean, there's there's still. Um, and that's partly because people just have these very large disposable incomes at the, at the top of society, and they can absorb some of the interest rate rises. But you've also got, you know, a large number of people who own properties outright, um, a, a higher number of people owning properties outright than you had in the early 1980s. Um, I mean, there was a report um, the other day about the the very large number of, of properties in central London uh, that are bought in cash nowadays. Uh, so you have these wealth elites uh, that are relatively un, un, untouched by um, monetary policy changes. Uh, there will be, I mean, the, the the people who will be most affected by the interest rate rises are the people who have um, got onto the property ladder relatively recently. Um, so it will be people in their 30s and 40s. And of course, these are these, these are what many people consider to be the lucky ones, because there's large sections of society that would like to own property, but it's just simply not, not, not possible. Um, so these people where you've some of whom have taken out extremely large um, mortgages in order to um, get on the property ladder, particularly in London, the southeast, um, and are now um, suddenly going to find that after their initial um, uh, interest rate fix, that, that the terms of those of, of that credit are, are, are going to look extremely uh, different. Uh, but for people, um, you know, further along in life, and people with much larger quantities of wealth, it's true that um, in, that monetary policy may not be a way of, of, of reducing the overall amount of, of spending in the economy. And, and, and that's where uh, fiscal policy and, and tax rises come in. But of course, that raises all sorts of other ideological and, and, and political uh, problems and, and, and questions about how that sort of policy gets represented in the media and this sort of thing. Um, I think, you know, the other the other things that to say are that I mean there has there there is and this is another thing which my article touches on is there is um, this um, 
new vogue for what um, the US Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has called modern supply side economics. And, and by modern, what, what she's doing is contrasting it with the supply side economics of Reagan, Thatcher, and in a rather warped way, Liz Truss, uh, which was all about cutting taxes on the rich in the hope that that would liberate investment and spending so as to unleash this wave of entrepreneurial um, investment and activity and innovation and so on. The idea being that, you know, it's, it's because the rich are too um, strangled by taxation and regulation that we don't have enough um, uh, innovation and dynamism in the economy. Uh, that That's the sort of old supply side um, uh, economics that, that Yellen is, is contrasting with. The, 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 the new one, um, is one which uh, focuses on government industrial policy on trying to um, kind of free up various forms of investment, uh, particularly at a national level, uh, so as to reduce reliance on overseas supply chains that can become all sort of gummed up by by things like by by by, by geopolitics and and wars and diseases and that kind of thing, uh, and that it might be possible to um, unleash more productivity gains, particularly in the domestic economy, and to have more um, efficient, more seamless supply chains. Uh, and that way, you're not going to be so beholden to some of these sorts of um, uh, unexpected price rises, which whose initial, whose original cause is geopolitical uh, or, or biopolitical in, in the sense of COVID, um, and that this is the way to, to tackle inflation in the long term. But of course, that can only work across a very long period of time. Because across a long a period of time that is is much longer than the than the political cycle um and you know who's to say that i mean it could be that if 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 britain carries on raising interest rates to the level that's expected which is to to get the bank rate up above 6% by early 2024 by that point uh, that may have unleashed enough economic pain uh, but heavily uh, uh, focused upon um people in their in, in their 30s and 40s and homeowners uh, in in midlife um that 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 may be enough you know in, but but that but that's a hell of a lot more pain than would be required um if it weren't for the fact that there are still these sections of society that are still able to spend uh, lavishly uh, untroubled by this and you know large sections of society who own their properties outright um you know, if you look at these maps of the UK of the most common form of tenure between uh, private rental, social rental, uh, mortgage holder, um, and outright owner across the UK, there are large areas of of rural Britain where um, outright ownership is the most uh, common form of of tenure, um, and this is to do with the the very large numbers of of people who were able to get onto the onto the property ladder in the um you know in 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 the in the 1980s in particular partly with through the sale of, of of social housing and so on um and have now paid off their mortgages so i mean that has made monetary policy a blunter instrument but those those rural areas don't cover enough constituencies do they to return the tories to power even if people were voting only in terms of their their own raw financial self-interest no that's right but I mean, obviously, the Tories, the Tories' electoral problems probably are, are, are broader than just economic at this point. I mean, you know, if you look at this, I mean, obviously, Labour has this fixation on those red wall seats, um, and it may be that actually the people who Labour needs to lure back in order to, to win an election as far as those red wall seats are concerned. It may be true that many of those people are not particularly affected by by monetary policy um, uh, and, um, you know, in that sense, are not, you know, saying that, the, you know, this is the Tories' mortgage crisis may not 
kind of be something that, that wins back lots of people in their, their 60s and 70s um, living in, you know, red wall seats. Uh, nevertheless, of course, we, we know that there are plenty of other reasons why those those people um, are, are furious with the, the Conservatives. And a lot of them relate to, to things that went on under the under the Johnson administration. So, I mean, you know, there, there, there's, there were various things going on. But I think that, um, uh, you know, it, it could be in, in, in those... Um, you know, it could be that in, in in the so-called blue wall seats um, of 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 the areas of um, the uh, of of the south, um, people who have been, I suppose, some of them have been the the the, the voters that were were fought over quite a lot in the nineteen nineties. Um, you know, the the sort of um, aspirational middle class, but. But still, um, you know, not 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 super rich, but nevertheless fairly firmly middle class homeowning um, families, um, and those are you know these are these are votes that obviously the Liberal Democrats also believe that they can win, and uh, and Labour believe they can win, and um, so I think that the 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 mortgage crisis um, and the various political conflicts that went on during the during the kind of Brexit and COVID dominated years maybe maybe quite separate in in various ways. So it seems whatever happens, it's pretty much impossible that the Tories will win the election that has to happen next year. So in a sense, whether or not they do anything about this isn't going to make any difference to their electoral prospects or possibly to the the economy either. But the Labour government coming in, let's assume that there will be a Labour government from next year. Does the incoming Labour government have any solutions on offer? Well, we know they they have not offered any fiscal solutions really, and they've been very they they're getting more and more adamant that they're not that they don't have any fiscal room for manoeuvre. Um, so Wes Streeting has has now said, you know, effectively that that that, that they're not going to have more money to spend on uh, salaries in the in the NHS. Um, Rachel Reeves has said that that they're going to stick to um, Tory spending plans. Um, this, I mean, in some ways, is a is a very familiar electoral um, uh, playbook because this is how Blair and Brown fought the nineteen ninety seven election, and that's why public services continue to be starved through um, uh, much of the the first term of of, of the of, of the Blair era. And it wasn't until the, the second term that that suddenly these large amounts of money started being distributed to to, to rebuild schools. And hospitals and this sort of thing. Um, so, in some ways, it, maybe it's a sort of um, fairly familiar, uh, very risk-averse electoral strategy. Uh, and there was also the controversy that surrounded um, uh, Rachel Reeves' um, uh, uh, slight um, pullback from the quite dramatic commitment um, from the last Labour conference to to, to spend twenty eight billion pounds a year on um, green investment, and she's now said that, that a Labour government would would build up towards that um, uh, level of spending. But but not make a commitment to do it straight away. Um, so they 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 they're quite keen to 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 avoid being painted as profligate with money. And of course, this is something that I guess I mean it's 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 pretty Blairite, but it was also Brownite as well. I mean, after all, Gordon, it was Gordon Brown's uh, policy to to go into the nineteen ninety seven election uh, promising to stick to to Tory spending plans. Um, so. You know, there's there's sort of naked electoral um, strategy going on there in many ways. Um, they won't say anything about what the Bank of England does. I mean, Rachel Reeves, when asked about you know what she thinks about these interest rate rises, will only say, um, "Well, that's a matter for the Bank of England. We don't have any. You know, I, I don't comment on what the Bank of England is doing. It's independent, and so on." Um, 
Now, of course, chancellors do meet with the um, governor of the Bank of England, and and you know, they, who knows exactly what 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 forms of discussions and and, and pressure might might go on in, in in the background. But she won't say anything about it, or whether she thinks it's a good or a bad way to to tackle inflation. Um, I think that I mean, you know, I, at the moment, I don't think. From an from from an economist's perspective, or an economic policymaker's perspective, Labour are not really offering anything. Um, they seem quite at pains not to offer anything. They they seem to be afraid that if they were to offer something, that it that it's really just a hostage to fortune. And maybe you know maybe that's a partly a symptom of being um, kind of somewhere between sort of fifteen and twenty five percent ahead in the polls is that you you don't really have anything to gain from 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 coming out and 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 saying very much. Um, so at the moment, all of the the noises they're making in public are very much against um, spending commitments or uh, promises to increase spending and that kind of thing. Now, how much of that is pure electoral strategy and how much of that is actual kind of ideology um, that what this is, you know, in terms of what they genuinely believe to be the case, um, uh, who knows exactly? I mean, they, they, they do say, you know, the tax burden is already very high. And in aggregate terms, the tax burden is very high um, in terms of, you know, you look at the the the, the, the um, Overall tax take, but of course, um, a lot of that is falling very heavily on on people who um, are struggling in lots of ways in order to, you know, on people who at the same time are trying to pay off things like student loans and people who are paying very high high levels of rent to 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 to, to um, without actually having any chance of ownership at all, um, and it's falling very lightly on people with who are the, the people who are very very asset rich and people who um, uh, you know don't live off um live off work for their income to the same extent so um i think you know that there were questions about the distribution of that fiscal um uh, uh fiscal take um and i think that you know they, that's a conversation they're, they're clearly not going to have because of how it will get immediately skewed towards um you know this will be presented as the politics of envy and, and that sort of thing i assume that's that's why why they wouldn't do it but i mean there are no doubt voices around them from from places like the ippr and others and and the resolution foundation that are that are that are demonstrating um you know quite how unjust some of this um uh, some of this current fiscal settlement is uh, at a time when people in their in their 20s and 30s um really need you know they're being offered very very little from the from the current um economic model there's that incredibly bleak thing that Wes Streeting said at the weekend that no hope is better than false hope. <laughs> this may be a, a naive way of looking at it, but the main reason for the immense Labour lead, or one of the main reasons for the immense Labour lead in the polls, is that many voters, a large majority of voters, it seems, have had enough of the Tories. They feel that the Tories are offering nothing, that their standard of living has fallen, and all the rest of it. And that's why they're planning to vote Labour. So for Labour to say, we're not going to change anything, I mean, it would seem this is an opportunity to say we are going to change things. We've been talking about comparisons with, with 1997, but the core message of that election, or one of, the, one of the messages anyway of that election, was things can only get better. But Labour seem to be saying now things can't get any better, but vote for us anyway. Yeah, I mean, they, you know, they, 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 they keep saying that the economic situation is very bleak um, and that they need to be responsible, that they need to um, work within those constraints. Um, so the bleakness of the situation, which has been, you know, in some ways, it's, it's we, we know the, the terrain of this now. I mean, I, I read a piece uh, a year ago in the LRB um, 
which was titled um, uh, "The Seductions of Declinism," but it was it was quite heavily uh, a lot of the the, the um, evidence that I was discussing in that piece was a uh, report by the Resolution Foundation called "Stagnation Nation," um, and it which was about the fact you know that Britain has had uh, historically unprecedented uh, wage stagnation. Um, you know, wages at the, in real terms at the moment are, are at the same level as they were before the the global financial crisis of. Of 2007, 8, 9. Um, and a lot of this is to do with, with slumping productivity. Uh, but at the same time, you know, it's also not good for um, economic work, sort of prosperity and progress um, and the ability of people to sort of improve their lot in life to have uh, th- this these structures of the economy which allow uh, various forms of rentier power to extract very large amounts of money, um, either through forms of private equity ownership of you know things like care homes and um, uh, housing and various other things, uh, mixed with this uh, kind of growing uh, class of, of 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 high net worth individuals and 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 people with very large quantities of assets, who are also um, partly through the the rise of a kind of um, kind of consultancy circuit of, of lawyers and accountants, which basically specialise in allowing very rich people to get richer. Um, that 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 there has been a kind of delinking um, of um, uh, of 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 income increases from the sphere of work and productivity. Um, and this is kind of ultimately fatal. Um, I don't want to say fatal for capitalism, because that suggests that, that capitalism is on its last legs, which it, which, it, which I don't think it is. But it's, but it's certainly fatal for the, for the legitimation of, 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 of capitalism. And for, uh, in particular, it's, it's fatal for the um, legitimacy of, of the labor market and for kind of uh, visions of how a sort of, inverted commas, good bourgeois family um, life is led because within the kind of um, normatively good bourgeois family life that Thatcher was selling, you kind of go to university, you leave university, you get married, you buy property, you have kids, you pay off your mortgage, you have some sort of vaguely comfortable retirement. Um, that that sort of set of stages of of, of life between childhood and and, and death uh, no longer really kind of work in that way. It's no longer clear how those first few stages uh, are expected to work absent some form of inheritance uh, or other form of uh, basically uh, undeserved luck um so in that sense i think there's a kind of a you know a real kind of uh, we, there's a there's a deep disorientation going on amongst both i think the electorate but also the our political elites of how to carry on trying to sort of both sell this status quo because ultimately uh, labor is not offering a different status quo and they're quite clear that they don't they, 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 they don't intend to they, they want to be branded as as kind of you know corbynistas or, or or anything like that um but at the same time you know how do you talk about this this status quo uh, in a half honest fashion without also confronting the fact that it doesn't work any longer in any kind of social um or, or democratic sense and i think you know labor has has ended up you know as you say started trying to 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 sort of really kind of keep pressing home to people quite how broken this this model is in order to try and convince people um or, or try to explain to people why they are going to be so hamstrung it as much as, as hamstrung by it as much as anybody else which is a very sort of strange form of kind of political promise making which you know yes 
you can you can be as you can be true to your word that way you can you can you can be um you can i suppose perform honesty in a way because you can say you know this situation is really grim um and it's so grim that i'm not actually uh, even going to make any promises that anything's going to get better at all uh, and that way you'll know you can promise you can trust me um and that is, of course, uh, I suppose, a, in some ways, a kind of welcome um, kind of alternative to sort of Johnsonism, where you sort of say, oh, everything's going to be great. But then, you know, by the time anybody's found out that you were you were lying, you've moved on to some other lie kind of thing. Um, but I think it is it is very difficult to know what is the correct rhetorical ploy, because there's, you know, to, to through which to kind of talk about this thing that is fundamentally not working, uh, whether it, you know, whether this yields any kind of benefits for Labour, if they were to get into office having said, you know, the entire economic model is broken and therefore we're going to be as constrained by that as anybody else, um, you know, it's not clear how that carries on working for them once they're in office. But I suppose it's, it, you know, I suppose there's still, you know, if they've got people like Peter Mandelson speaking in their ear, then um, Mandelson will be telling them um, that uh, Labour Governments have never been really trusted by uh, the, the by, by the electorate, um, and they're not trusted because they believe that we're all a bunch of lefties who want to take their money and spend it on lots of things that we'll then go and do very badly and very inefficiently. And the way to convince them otherwise is to demonstrate that you are as anxious about money as they are, and that way they might actually trust you, and therefore you have to sort of avoid speaking in any kind of social democratic terms at all costs. And I, I mean, I assume that's what's going on behind the scenes, but it you know it, it made. It, to do that in 1997 was a very different thing from to do it in 2023 or 2024, because in 1997, Britain was on the cusp of one of the um, greatest uh, sort of economic booms that we've had since 1945 in in terms of sort of um, uh, GDP growth and um, uh, kind of the intake to the Treasury and, and, and this sort of thing. So... Um, uh, it's a it's a very different ploy when when really it is difficult to see exactly where where hope lies. So uh, you know I think I can understand why Streeting would say that, um, but it's partly because they they are at such pains to 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 avoid uh, speaking the language of, of of more profound economic reform, which the previous leadership did make some gestures towards. Well, I think they they spoke about it actually more than they promised to do it. Actually, I mean that was the, the you know in some ways the the, the the one of the ironies of of of, of Corbynism. I mean they you know they people people saw them as very radical. They also were quite clear that they did still have fiscal rules in play, um, which you know they they actually got criticised quite heavily by the left for some of their fiscal rules. Um, and um, I mean they were quite sort of sensible, uh, reasonable fiscal rules. They were they certainly weren't attempting to throttle growth, but they did want to demonstrate that they that they that they that they had certain sort of uh, measures of what was what counted a fiscal responsibility, which is what Liz Trust specifically did not have, and why uh, effectively the the, the 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 financial markets uh, combined with the Bank of England decided that she had to go. Um, but um, no, I mean you know if you look at exactly what um, the Corbyn and McDonald were promising to do. I mean, who's to say? I mean, this is all sort of in the space of hypothesis now. But who's to say if that would have been adequate for some of the problems that Britain currently faces? Because Britain, what the Resolution Foundation and others keep reminding people is that the problem that Britain has had since two thousand and nine 
uh, and uh, added to further problems self-inflicted since 2016, uh, and then additional problems uh, following COVID, is that there has been this kind of slumping um, productivity growth. Um, and it's a in some ways, it's a it's it's a sort of headache that no one has a, a very clear um, answer to. Um, certainly, Brexit doesn't make it easier. Um, and then Britain has uh, recovered more slowly from COVID than other comparative nations as well. Um, so there is there, there seems to be a kind of a, a, a national sickness um, that it's good to speak honestly about. And I guess you could credit Labour that they want to at least speak honestly about it and not not say that oh well you know we've we've got some sort of magic bullet. Um, but the problem is that you know you need to be able to speak honestly about it as a politician. Um, it's one thing for me in the LRP to sort of write these pieces saying, oh, God, it's all doom and gloom. And I've had some feedback on my piece saying, oh, God, I liked your piece, but it was a bit depressing. I mean, but, you know, in some ways, that's the sort of privilege of, of, being, of writing essays rather than being, a, rather than being a, a, a politician. I mean, I think politicians do have some obligation to sort of, if you're going to speak honestly about some of these problems, you also need to to, 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 to lay out what, what are some of the kind of policies that you believe might, might redress them rather than to, to suggest that they're kind of... Uh, parts of nature. Is it possible to imagine some kind of massive government investment in, in building wind farms, in solar energy, some version of a, of a Green New Deal that would increase productivity and promote growth and make ordinary people's lives better at the same time? Or is that a, is that a complete pipe dream? Well, I think, I mean, there are various problems here. I mean, so there, this has been the kind of ideal of the Green New Deal. I think, you know, everyone associated with the Green New Deal as a as a concept um from from Anne Pettifer uh, onwards. Um there's a lot of lot of American socialists who who like to credit themselves with having coined this phrase, but actually, I think it's important to recognise places like the New Economics Foundation and Alan Pettifer were were, were were sort of have been throwing this idea around. I think really since the global financial crisis. But um, you know, it has been a great success as a concept. So it's a credit, including to those uh, American socialists, um, that, that this concept has has become a sort of a um, you know, a byword for a, a, a new era of of state interventionism and fiscal largesse, which would be um, uh, justified on the basis of the undeniable climate crisis. Because after all, one of the reasons why it has been difficult in the past to justify um, large increases in, in state spending and infrastructure investment and so on is that the, the kind of standard neoliberal response is, oh, we all disagree on what that money should be spent on. And that's, you know, the great thing about the market is that it, it factors in you know, millions of different opinions and decisions and, and valuations and perspectives. And, and, and then it's a sort of a sorting mechanism or a sort of electoral system for deciding where money should go. Whereas, of course, with the climate crisis, it is possible to to, to, to speak fairly unambiguously, unless you're um, some sort of online crank, uh, that this is a, a fairly real um, uh, uh, and unambiguous and, 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 and the most urgent uh, problem that we face. And, and, and that you know, in principle, should be you, you could wed that to the um, to the balance sheets of 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 of, of sovereign nations kind of most powerfully the United States, but potentially, you know, the, 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 the British state as well, where fiscal policy could be put towards that end. Um, I mean, that, I think, remains something that is not going to go away as an idea. Um, and that's where critics of um, 
this there's this idea of the de-risking state that I mentioned in the piece that that has been criticised by Daniel Gabor and, and others. That effectively, what the state is doing is trying to unlock investment from large asset managers such as BlackRock and and and, the, and these sorts of um, uh, institutions. So is that they will start to divert some of the trillions of. Of, of dollars at their fingertips towards forms of infrastructure investment and and, and renewable energy investment and, and this sort of thing, um, but the the criticism is that effectively the state is is, is promising to still is, is to remove the risk from from doing so that the state is offering various guarantees and subsidies and um, is sort of uh, trying to, to to kind of smooth the path to this to to, to these investments. Um, but you know what what actual kind of you know why should these very <laughs> well the uh, institutions um uh, not have to take on any risk. I mean, why should they be? Uh, why should they be allowed to make a certain return on their capital without there being a possibility of that some of this investment doesn't work out? I mean, this is a sort of a, a sort of phony capitalism. Once the state kind of the taxpayer or the, the state balance sheet carries the risk, and the the the, the wealth managers uh, make off with the returns, which has you know famously been one of the great problems with the with the with Britain's model of of outsourcing and, and PFI um, for really since the since the late 80s early 90s so it, you know this is yeah, and we see that now we're seeing that now with the water companies we've seen it with the rail companies yeah uh, the, and you said in the piece about PPE during the pandemic yeah absolutely yeah the state the state remains part of the the equation but uh, uh carrying costs and risks uh, rather than making profits so um but i think you know the the the, the re- one of the reasons Rachel Reeves backtracked from the 28 billion um and one of the i think undeniable problems that any of this um uh, so the alternative, so the alternative to the de-risking state model is, I mean, Daniel Gabor and others would talk about what we need is a big green state model. Uh, so the big green state is a state that will actually um, uh, use its own balance sheet uh, uh, much more explicitly um, and aggressively. It will ret- retain ownership over some of the uh, companies that are set up, um, and it will effectively retain the possibility of, of of direct governmental intervention. So it's much closer to the kind of planning state that was described edited in the 1970s and i guess it's also closer to the to the original vision of the new deal from the the roosevelt new deal of the 1930s um that it has a whether you call it social democratic or democratic socialist or or whatever but it basically does not rely on the financial sector from having to to sort of win the favor uh sort of attract the uh, the eye of the of 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 big organized private capital um and it just gets on and does it um and uh the you know the the, the downside of, of i mean potentially of, of of both of these these models is is to what extent does the state still have the uh or did it ever have the, the the wherewithal to carry out this kind of industrial policy effectively um and this has always been the you know this has been a a, a neoliberal critique of socialism dating back to uh, to Ludwig von Mises in the 1920s is that socialism is all very well and, and state intervention and state spending state planning is all very well um but um you know on what basis but with what rationality and with what knowledge does do centralized experts and planners uh, take decisions on whether to invest in this particular infrastructure or that particular infrastructure or you know to to locate the the, the wind farm here or there and so one critique is you were going to get kind of pork barrel politics which is that effectively the money will go to the to the friends of the government and that was really what what Boris Johnson revived very effectively um, and another critique is you're just going to get lots of very bad investments you're going to get lots of you're going to get you know the government is going to buy bad infrastructure it's going 
going to it's going to negotiate badly it's going to build stuff that actually doesn't work or we don't need or you know actually loses it money and this sort of thing now the the urgency of the climate crisis is continues to be used as a sort of pushback against that it's to say well actually you know if you could just get more wind infrastructure out there um so that we rely less on fossil fuels this is a sort of unambiguous good and it, the fact that maybe you know it's, it's less efficient around some of the margins to the tune of a few tens of millions here and there actually is not the point because the urgency is existential and we only have a few years in which to act so um you know i think um uh, it's that, that I think is that that is a rhetoric that Rachel Reeves has has I think quite significantly pulled back from, and and there's just been this sort of again one of these sort of weekend st- sort of newspaper stories um, uh, about. Keir Starmer allegedly saying that he hates tree huggers, which again, you know, is a sort of trying to sort of um, make clear that that Labour is is still a sort of sensible uh, e- economic entity and is not going to kind of buy into any sense that that, that, a, that a major paradigm shift is required in order to meet the climate emergency. Uh, that use of the word sensible, I mean, that isn't actually a very sensible position, is it? Yeah, I'm sensible in inverted commas again. I need to I need to keep sort of wiggling my fingers. <laughs> for... um, yeah, so you you talk in the piece about how national security. Security is used as a rationale for not using the markets. And those neoliberal arguments about not leaving things to the state hmm. when it comes to building nuclear missiles and fighter jets, doesn't, they don't seem to apply there. And presumably, you could use those same arguments more persuasively for, for building wind farms rather than for building fighter jets. Yeah, I mean, and, and, and that is what the Green New Deal has uh, uh, sort of agenda has done. And there is also, I mean, there's this kind of fascinating um movement in the United States called the climate mobilization movement, which has um, effectively tried to um, use the example of how the US mobilized for World War II um, uh, at the end of the 1930s, early 1940s, extremely rapidly. um, So you kind of repurpose a car um, production factory as a tank production factory or a, um, uh, I don't know, whatever, some sort of domestic appliance factory had suddenly kind of repurposed for um, building uh, uniforms or munitions or whatever it might be. And this all happened in the space of a few months. Uh, and, And the climate mobilization movement kind of looks at this in sort of what was possible, how it was done, um, and, you know, puts out as a kind of hypothesis, you know, what would it mean to to respond with the same urgency for um, uh, for, for climate mobilisation, for, 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 for repurposing the economy uh, around uh, decarbonisation. Um, so you get a lot of these analogies which kind of move back and forth between the conditions of the 1930s and 1940s and the, the, the conditions today. Um, you know, there was quite a lot of discussion also during the pandemic around um, you know the capacity of uh, and and as there should have been probably more during the uh, depths of the global financial crisis in 2008 and 9 about the fact that that states uh, their balance sheets um c- they can continue to uh, expand the amount of of of, of national debt effectively without limit and, and britain recently um passed uh, the the britain's national debt passed 100% of of gdp for the first time since i can't remember exactly when i think it was the early 1960s recently uh, now this used to be spoken of as sort of apocalyptic by George Osborne in the in, in during the early years of the um coalition government um and it was the justification for you know closing down libraries and um uh, cutting le- local government spending and you know, saddling undergraduates with uh, vast debts all of this was done in the name of avoiding a situation that we currently have today of allowing uh, the national debt to surpass uh, the size of gdp and and ultimately you know what what covid demonstrated um was the insight of um 
the wartime states uh, regarding wartime states and so on is that actually public debts can carry on rising and actually this is you know looking at the aggregate amount of debt is not is really doesn't tell you a huge amount about the the viability and sustainability of an economic model as george osborne presumably knew perfectly well i mean it, it was an excuse to shrink the states I mean, it was an excuse to shrink the state, wasn't it? They weren't really worried about debt, but they were able to use that as an argument to put to the electorate, saying, well, we have to we have to do this and this is why. But it, it was an excuse rather than a real reason. Yeah, which obviously worked. Yeah, and he got he got he got um, just over a year of uh, <laughs> of a majority on the back of that from 2015 to 2016. So, yeah. And the other thing about the COVID pandemic again that showed that ability to repurpose maybe not so much in terms of car factories though i know that ferrari was saying they were going to start building ventilators and i don't think a great deal came of that but in terms of the pharmaceutical industry and scientific research that people who had been researching flu vaccines for example switched to covid and the way in which the pharmaceutical industry was able well, with with a lot of state help, was able to respond. And that's a much more recent model than the the 1940s and the the American war effort. And so you can't say that that kind of thing isn't possible under the current economic conditions. I remember in, in 2020, the hopeful noises that if we can do this for COVID, when the pandemic's over, maybe we can do it for the environment too. But that doesn't seem to be happening. No, I mean, that, no, I, I remember those, those conversations as well. And it was... Um... Yes, I think exactly what has ha- I, I think there are still lots of unasked or unanswered questions about what we make of COVID historically as a shared experience and as a memory, because I think it's there's a sort of there's a refusal really to, to there are lots of things which we don't really kind of want to learn from it because we almost don't want to to sort of revisit it, relive it. We we've sort of it's I, I often speak to friends about kind of quite how vague a lot of the memories of that of that period are i mean i i have very sharp memories of of the moments at which it ended i remember i can vividly remember my first pint in a pub in the summer of 2020 but i can't my memories of what happened in sort of march april may 2020 are quite vague actually i mean it's all a bit so i, I think there's a sort of i think on a kind of cultural level you must need you know the, the cultural shared memory um that there's there's an odd kind of you know given given how extraordinary and quite extreme those events were it's it i think it is odd how how we haven't managed to use them more on and um uh yes how how some of those discussions particularly in the in the, in the first lockdown of uh, you know of 2020 there was there there was a sort of an online um i mean i i wrote pieces um and had discussions um about kind of what what might be possible in the future and there were surveys done about how people didn't want to go back to um how things were before after it all ended and in a way i suppose one of the manifestations where this actually did play out in the economy was what then became called the great resignation of people just sort of quitting things and um having these kind of rather sort of private um existentialist um changes of direction um but a public or collective one somehow didn't then seem to be a possibility or not yet anyway will davis thank you very much it's been a pleasure thanks very much you can read will's piece in the current issue of the lrb along with josephine quinn on cyrus the great and patricia lockwood on david foster wallace 
Patricia Lockwood will be talking to Joanne O'Leary about Wallace on next week's podcast. A couple of days later than usual, it will be out on Thursday the 20th of July rather than Tuesday the 18th. The LRB podcast is produced by Anthony Wilkes and Zoe Kilbourne. The music is by Kieran Brunt. I'm Thomas Jones. Thank you for listening. <laughs>